Hello, my name's John Dennis. It's Thursday the 21st of January. Today, a surprise fall in unemployment, raising hopes that the worst of the recession may be over. If, and it remains a big if, if we don't have a double-dip recession, I think we've probably seen the end of the very big monthly increases of 50,000-60,000 a month. A businessman jailed last month for attacking a burglar who threatened to kill his family has been freed by the appeal court. The law in this area works quite well and if you are a homeowner um, who is acting reasonably to defend yourself, you won't be prosecuted. What'll happen to Obama's healthcare reforms after Scott Brown wins Ted Kennedy's Senate seat in Massachusetts for the Republicans? It will raise taxes, it will hurt Medicare, it will destroy jobs and run our nation deeper into debt. More than a week after the earthquake, how the gangs are taking over in Haiti's ungovernable capital. And how an independent British record company is scoring a number one album in the American charts with Vampire Weekend, an American band. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk First, Our main story. Unemployment fell unexpectedly in the three months up to November. The jobless level fell by 7,000 to below 2.5 million. It's the first quarterly decline since May 2008. And the unemployment rate now stands at 7.8%. And it's raised hopes that we may have seen the worst of the recession. Larry Elliott, our economics editor, says it's a rare bit of good news for Gordon Brown. Yeah, two pieces of good news, in fact, really. Firstly, obviously, falling unemployment's very good news for the government um, at this stage. Six months ago, people were assuming that unemployment would be 3 million by Christmas. In fact, it's uh, stopped at two point, just under 2.5 million. It's now started to fall a bit. So that's the first piece of good news. The second piece of good news is, of course, that falling unemployment is good news for public finances because uh, the less people you've got on the, on the dole queues, uh, the less you're paying out in benefits and council tax and so on. So the government estimates that uh, the fact that the count is 450,000 lower now than the National Order Office said it would be at the time of the budget will probably save something like £10 billion over the next five years. And if, as the Treasury believes, unemployment now starts to fall rather than remaining flat, as the NAO assume, that will probably save something like an extra £7 billion. So that's a sort of total of £17 billion in all. And uh, at a time when the public finances are stretched, to say the least, uh, that's, uh, that's very welcome news for the government. Does that mean that the worst of the recession is now over? I think we've seen the end of the very big falls in employment. It's quite possible, I think, that we will see some smaller falls in the months ahead. There may well be some sort of seasonal Christmas effect going on here. There was a big increase in part-time working and a continued fall in full-time working. So that may reflect that that a lot of uh, high street stores were actually taking on staff in the run-up to Christmas and that may unwind in in the months to come. But uh, if, and it remains a big if, if we don't have a double-dip recession, I think we've probably seen the end of the very big monthly increases of 50,000, 60,000 a month, and we might see sort of unemployment sort of bumping around a bit, up up a bit some months, down a bit in, in other months. But I think that actually uh, we've got out of jail here compared to previous recessions. There was a rise in this same period in the number of people who aren't even looking for work. Well, why was that? Well, that seems to be a student effect. I mean, there's looks like a lot of students, about 80,000 thereabouts, just came off the unemployment count. Um, now, there's two ways of looking at that. Either that's a sort of positive thing, they've just gone straight into full-time education and 
um, therefore they don't need to be on the unemployment and be looking for work. Uh, the sort of less good um, side of it might be that they've just decided to take on any old course they can because they've given up all hope of getting a job that they would actually prefer to be uh, in work but have taken um, full-time education as a second best option. So it's very hard to know at this stage but it's mainly a student effect. And um, what does all this say about Gordon Brown's handling of the recession? Well, Gordon Brown is going to make the most of this. And there is a good story to tell here for the government. I mean, if you think about what happened to the economy last year, official figures show it probably contracted by getting on for 5%. Now, that's a much bigger fall than in any year we saw in the recessions of the 1980s and the early 1990s. And yet the increase in unemployment has been far, far smaller. Um, if you'd taken it on a pro rata basis, a sort of 4.75% fall in the in the economy would probably have sent unemployment up to 3.5 million in this recession rather than the 2.5 million as you've actually gone to. So uh, that's, the, that's the headline figure. And the government's argument is that, A, the labour market is now more flexible, that people have priced themselves into work by taking pay freezes, pay cuts and working shorter working weeks. And there's also been some sort of active steps taken by the government. You know, the, the government does deserve credit. It's pumped some money into Job Centre Plus to help people get off the unemployment count. It's set up schemes to help young people back into, into work, give them sort of job guarantees. And there is some evidence, I think, that actually this more activist approach has prevented the really sharp increases in unemployment that we saw in previous recessions. So good news for the government and well done to the government, I think. Larry Elliott. And there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash business. Also on The Guardian's website today. I'm Sarah Phillips from G2, The Guardian's daily features section. In today's issue, Patrick Barkham speaks to former Guantanamo Bay prisoner Omar Degas about his experiences there. William Powderstone describes the psychological tricks of restaurant menus. And Lucy Mangum provides a catch-up guide for the award-winning American drama Mad Men, as Series 3 is about to be aired on the BBC. All this and more at guardian.co.uk forward slash g2. Munir Hussain, who was jailed for attacking a masked intruder, has been freed by the Court of Appeal. And for her, she's our legal affairs correspondent. What the Court of Appeal has done is look again at the facts of the case. And it's decided that the way um, Munir Hussain behaved, although it, it wasn't justified as self-defence, they've said that he was so clearly provoked that his sentence should be reduced. So actually what the Court of Appeal is saying is this isn't about the rights of householders householders to defend themselves. The law on that is very clear. You're allowed to use reasonable force. And Munir Hussein went further than using reasonable force. But that there are other facts at work in this case and the extent to which he was provoked by the attack on his home. And that in those circumstances, and given his character and the fact that he's never been accused of any violent crime before, it was a fairer sentence to suspend his term of imprisonment, which effectively means that he's been freed today. His brother remains in jail. Uh, He did have his sentence reduced, though. Yeah, I mean, what the Court of Appeal did was say that although they felt the original sentences were too heavy, this was still an offence. Uh, They still went beyond self-defence, so they couldn't claim that as a defence. And they did inflict very serious injuries on this man. And the way the law works in this country is that even if somebody has broken into your home, um, and it it was clear in this case that the intruder was a a professional criminal, 
it doesn't justify very serious use of violence other than what is necessary for self-defense. So I think there is a mixed message from the court here. On the one hand, it's not acceptable to chase someone down the street and beat them uh, with a cricket bat. On the other hand, the facts can be taken into account and the extent to which you've been provoked and the extent to which you're potentially acting under fear for yourself and your family are relevant factors and that the sentence should reflect that. This is a case that sort of aroused very uh, strong emotions uh, in the general public. It has echoes of the Tony Martin case of a few years ago. Um, What do you think, how do you judge the public mood on this? Well, I think exacerbated by some parts of the media, there's this hysteria at the moment about the rights of householders to defend themselves. It's one of these things that really doesn't happen that often, but when it does, seems to touch a raw nerve with people. And I think it maybe goes to more fundamental values about an Englishman's home being his castle and your right to protect yourself, Um, all of which are understandable sentiments. But I think there's so much misunderstanding about the law. The law in this area works quite well. And if you are a homeowner... Um, who is acting reasonably to defend yourself, you won't be prosecuted. And even if you end up killing the intruder, if you can show it's reasonable, you won't be prosecuted. And if you are prosecuted, you're not likely to be convicted because you can plead self-defence. So here we're looking at a minority of cases which have very unusual facts. And I think, unfortunately, sweeping conclusions about the state of the law have been based on those. Afwa Hirsch. The Republicans are cock-a-hoop after winning Ted Kennedy's Senate seat, formerly held by Kennedy's brother, John F. Kennedy. Their winning candidate, Scott Brown, is a colourful character, a truck-driving National Guardsman who says he'll oppose Barack Obama's plans to reform the health care system. One thing is very, very clear as I travel throughout the state, people do not want the trillion-dollar health care plan that is being forced... that is being forced on the American people. And this bill is not being debated openly and fairly. It will raise taxes. It will raise taxes. It will hurt Medicare. It will destroy jobs and run our nation deeper into debt. Michael Tomaski is Guardian America's editor-at-large. Healthcare reform is uh, in peril. It's not necessarily dead, but it is certainly in trouble. The most likely scenario now, it seems to me and to many observers, is that the House of Representatives can pass the Senate bill exactly as it is. In other words, both houses have already passed their version of the bill. The House, uh, the House one spends more money than the Senate bill, and there are some other differences. Negotiators from both uh, chambers get together, iron out the differences. Uh, present a unified bill, take it back to both of their houses, okay? And then that unified bill has to pass uh, both houses again. That scenario can't play out now uh, in all likelihood in the Senate because the Democrats don't have that crucial 60th vote any longer. However, this is a sort of technical procedural wrinkle. If uh, the House of Representatives passes the Senate bill exactly as is, without changing one word, one comma, one subparagraph, then the Senate doesn't have to vote on it again. And that's what people are looking at. Do you think that's likely, Michael? Uh, I personally today don't think it's likely. Uh, It is uh, entirely possible. 
the negative argument is, or the argument against it happening, is that the Democrats are now running scared. The Democrats in the House of Representatives, uh, remember, did not pass the bill by exactly a wide margin in the first place. It only passed by three or four votes, so they can't afford to lose uh, hardly any votes. The Senate bill in the House of Representatives has critics both uh, on the left and on the Democratic uh, right. Uh, so it may be very difficult. Throw into the mix the current atmosphere, Democrats running around and panicking, throwing up their hands, saying, what are we going to do? We're in serious trouble. Uh, that's the argument against it happening. The argument for it happening quickly is that the alternative is worse, because if they don't do it, they look like a bunch of incompetent nincompoops. If they do it, at least they've passed this thing that they spent the bulk of a full year on. What will the effect of the arrival in the Senate of the winning candidate for the Republicans, Scott Brown, what, what effect will his arrival have on the Republicans? Uh, I think it, his arrival in the Senate will be energizing to Republicans, certainly, and uh, and it'll give them you know, that crucial one more vote to, 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 to stand up against uh, uh, big Democratic and uh, Obama-inspired legislation. So the practical effect in, in, in legislative terms, there won't be a cap-and-trade uh, legis- legislation to, to fight climate change this year. There won't be something like immigration reform, which some Democrats have been talking up lately. You know, these things, I think, are now off the table. Uh, you know, there remains the possibility that there's one moderate Republican in the Senate, Olympia Snow of Maine. She might play ball on a couple of things, but by and large, the Republicans are going to be pretty unified and are going to be able to block uh, any major legislation they want to block. Michael Tomaski in Washington. I'm John Dennis. This is Guardian Daily. And this is Vampire Weekend. That's Cousins by Vampire Weekend, a band from New York whose second album, Contra, has gone to number one in the American charts. The Guardian's Alexandra Topping says that what makes this unusual is that the band are signed to XL Recordings, a British indie label. Vampire Weekend fuse a indie, poppy guitar sound with kind of African beats that are infused throughout the albums, both albums really. And they um, generate a lot of excitement around a younger crowd. At Somerset House the other night, they played um, up on a balcony whilst the crowds were ice skating below. It was quite something. That sounds brilliant, if a little cold, I have to say. Uh, but, now, but this is a New York band with a number one album in America, but signed to a British label. How did XL Recordings manage to pull this off? Well, this is um, something that we're seeing a little bit more frequently, actually, that bands that have come to the UK and actually made it here, like The Strokes, and now Vampire Weekend, before going back over to the to their home country and, and doing quite well there. Jimi Hendrix was another example. It's, going, yeah. it's not, not a new thing, but it, it is quite unusual for a British, a British label to have such a commercial success in America, let alone with an American band. Absolutely. I mean, the British indies particularly have generally stayed cleared of the American market just because it's so difficult to crack and so expensive. So how have they done it? 
I think Excel has been growing exponentially for the for the past couple of years. They're trying now to keep a lid on that growth. And with that new that growth, with a bit more money, they've developed an American team and had the confidence to actually release the album themselves. What they usually do is release the album in the UK and then find a, a bigger distributor um, or a bigger label just to, to, to distribute it in the US. How are other UK indie labels faring in the recession? Because we hear a lot about how the majors are struggling with sort of music piracy and the internet and so on. The companies that can be a bit more nimble, can change the way they do things more quickly, are actually doing quite well. So you're seeing things like Dizzy Rascal is a perfect example. He was on a small record label, um, Excel actually, for his first three albums. And he's gone it alone for his fourth, which, you know, is great news for Dizzy because it means that he'll get most of the profits. Alexandra Topping. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. In the ruins of Haiti, struck by a second earthquake yesterday, there's increasing concern over outbreaks of looting by desperate survivors and the re-emergence of notorious gang leaders who escaped when the country's prisons collapsed. The Guardian's Ed Pilkington is in Port-au-Prince. Yeah, we've been to City Soleil this morning. This is the notorious, very, very poor sort of favela, say like the Rio favelas, that's uh, quite near the airport. And we've been shown around the, the, the area by a, a charity, an age group, a local charity, which tries to help young people avoid entering into the gangs by giving them education and sort of hope for their future. Uh, and they showed us around. They, the, the two things that are very interesting about it is one that while aid is not really reaching anywhere in the city much, although it's starting now to come through, it's even more pronounced in City Soleil because it has such a reputation for being a dangerous gang-ridden area that the authorities have not been coming here. When the national prison unloaded in the earthquake and all the about three to 4,000 prisoners escaped, many of them came here because it's a very easy place to hide. It's like a maze. There's lots of back streets. And the people we were with said that the community has came together, formed a committee, and decided that they were not going to let the gang members who escaped from the prison come back to this area and we know of at least one lynching that happened here one escaped prisoner was caught and killed so uh quite a dramatic uh, part of town here yesterday haiti suffered a further aftershock of magnitude 6.1 can you describe that well the first i knew about it was the the uh, original experience of lying in bed i mean i was half awake and the bed, bed shaking Fairly, you know, evidently, it wasn't violent or anything, but he was definitely shaking, and the cupboard door started swinging around. And we sort of jumped up and thought about running out of the house, but by the time we gathered thoughts, the aftershock had stopped. So it was quite a short aftershock, though very uh, uh, evident. Ed, it's over a week since the initial quake struck. How effective is the aid operation now? We're starting, I mean, every day you see a tiny bit more. We're, today we've been seeing water trucks particularly in more visible presence than, than before. But you have to say that even then it's sort of sporadic. You know, the gap between the water t- the, uh, tanks is, is quite a big one and people are presumably having to walk quite large distances carrying water to get it. And indeed, it's probably it's, it's almost impossible uh, that there's enough water being put out because 
you know, you can't feed a, a huge city like this with at least three million people with just a few water trucks around. So still, I mean, the same story is still eight days in. That aid is, is now being distributed, but that's no means enough of it. Ed Pilkington. Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe with the producers of Guardian Daily today. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.